subject tonight is in search of the church. There's a town called Atchison, Kansas, on the Missouri River, state of Kansas. Uh, it's, it's famous for a certain thing, but not for what it thought it would be famous for. Back in the day, they thought that Atchison might become a, an important railway hub, but it lost out to Kansas City in the south and Omaha, Nebraska, further north. And so today it's sleepy little town, really nice town, but a town with a certain claim to fame. And that is that on July the 24th, 1897, Amelia Earhart was born there. She was born in and raised in a little house at 223 North Market Street in Atchison, Kansas. When she was six and a half years old, the Wright brothers made their first historic flight out on the North Carolina coast. And then when she was 20 or so, maybe early 20s, she took a 10-minute ride in an airplane and she said right then, I've got to fly. And fly she did. She became the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, and then she, with a navigator, attempted to fly all the way around the world. That was the hope. But when they left Ley in Papua New Guinea, heading for Howland Island, Howland Island, which is basically in the middle of nowhere, but it is on the way to Hawaii, something happened. Some people say they crashed into the Pacific. Others say they didn't land at Howland, but turned around to land at another island called Gardner Island. A skeleton was found on Gardner Island. Somebody said this was Amelia Earhart, but there was no real proof of that. Someone floated the theory that she and her navigator had been captured by the Japanese and executed, but that was debunked. There was really no truth to that at all. Amelia Earhart was lost. Something happened. And so over time, people have searched, written books, done all kinds of things, studied, spent a lot of money, taken a lot of time. And that's fair enough. She is a significant historical figure, set a lot of records, wrote a lot of books. She's been honored in a thousand different ways. But in spite of all the searching, no one knows what happened to Amelia Earhart. But the search continues. There is another search that is continuing in the minds and hearts of many people. People say, which church should I attend? Which church should I be part of? And it's a fair question. There are, I don't know, thousands of different churches, even thousands of different denominations and belief systems around the world. And people say, which one's for me? And how do I know which one is for me? And someone will say, you know, this church just doesn't seem quite right. Or this church here, it doesn't really suit my kids. Or this church here, I'm not really sure that they're actually following the Bible. And that really gives me pause, gives me concern. How can I know which is the right church for me and for my family? And does God make it clear? Does God even tell me? What you don't want to be is in a place where the word of God is not actually being taught. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be where it's being misrepresented or neglected or half-taught. You don't want to be worshipping based on tradition and not on the Bible or simply because of family ties or culture. Am I getting close to some people's situation? Sure. I go to this church because I was raised there. I go to this church because that's what the family's always done and so I got to follow the family. Frankly, you don't. You really want to follow Jesus. If the family's doing that, then it's good all the way around. You want to be worshiping God based on the Bible, not on really any other factor. So how do you know if there's a right church for you 
Or is one church as good as another? Does God even have a church? A lot of people say God is okay. I just don't like church. And I can understand that. Some churches I've been to, I get it. God is okay. Here's a big one. But I don't like organized religion. Let me ask you a question then. How do you like your religion? Would you like it to be disorganized? I've never heard anyone say, I don't like an organized banking system. I don't like an organized military. Yes, you do. And you do like organized religion. Maybe what you mean is you've grown leery of or cynical of or even tired of some of the organized established churches. And there may be good reasons for that. Maybe. I get it. Jesus was very clear about this because he spoke to Peter and he said, speaking of himself, upon this rock, I will build my church. In the Bible, you read about real churches in actual specific locations. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, addressed the seven churches. They were in Asia Minor. Today, we would call that Turkey. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, Jesus is depicted as walking in the midst of the candlesticks, and he says, these are the churches. So he identifies with the church, showing that he's walking in the midst of the churches. So evidently, Jesus believed in church. He knew full well there wasn't such a thing as a perfect church. His own church nailed him to a cross, and yet he still encouraged people to support it. The early Christian church had its problems. Peter was confronted. Even Peter was confronted about some of his issues. Paul and Barnabas couldn't agree. John Mark was sent home from a missionary trip. So if you are looking for a perfect church, hey, good luck with that. But what God will have is a church. If it isn't going to be perfect and you can't recognize it by its perfection, how will you know? You'll know by the Bible. The word of God says it is the pillar and ground of the truth. And we are introduced to God's church in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, where the Bible says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. We've discussed this in prophecy. A woman symbolically represents a, tell me, a church. That's correct. And this is God's church down through time. The woman, the church in white, purity. But we read this in verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, again, another symbol in Bible prophecy. A day represents a, a year. That's right. Those were the 1260 years during which that first beast of Revelation 13 wielded such great influence and did really some serious spiritual damage. During that time, God's word was kept in the dark. The church was in the wilderness and terrible corruptions and false teachings started to seep into the Christian church. It was a time when the Christians were intensely persecuted. Not only were millions killed for their faith in God, their biblical faith in God, but the church became darkened with teachings that had no basis in the Bible, while the pure teachings of the Bible were crowded out by traditions and heresy and apostasy. 
We can think about what some of those false teachings were. Poor Christians stood up against them and they were executed, murdered, vilified, hated, run out of not only town but run out of country. It was serious. 500 years ago, right about this time, 500 years ago, it was difficult to stand up for the word of God, for truth and not tradition. Folks lost their lives. The church was teaching things such as infant baptism. No place in the Bible for that. Transubstantiation. The bread and the juice actually turned into the very body and blood of Jesus. Of course, that does not happen. The immortality of the soul was replaced by, sorry, the immortality of the soul replaced the biblical teaching of the non-immortality of the soul or the sleep of death. Uh, confession to God was replaced by confession to a priest. And Sunday sacredness supplanted, it took the place of the Bible Sabbath. The Bible Sabbath was replaced by the day of the sun. The church was in the wilderness. It's true, there were those, you can read this in the history books, there were those who did cling to the true faith of the Bible. Some did. And God would not allow his church to stay in the wilderness forever. He would have a church that would shine his light into the world. He would have a church that would uphold his word and would show people in God's last days the blessing of the Bible, the truth of the gospel, what it means to follow God's word, what faithfulness looks like, what truth actually is. He would have a church that he would use to prepare people to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And what would that church look like? Revelation 12, verse 17 says that the dragon was wroth with the woman. Who's the dragon? That's Satan. He was wroth. Old English. He was angry with the woman. The woman is the church. The dragon was angry with the church and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Look, the church is back. In verse 6, the church went into the wilderness. And now down here in the close of the chapter, the church is back. God speaks about his church, the remnant, that which remains, that which exists in the end of time, the remnant, God's people at last, a remnant smaller than the whole, but it resembles the whole. It's just like the whole. Many are called, but few are chosen. Truth is always going to be in the minority. Remember, remember, we've already read where the Bible says that all the world wondered or followed after the beast. So while the world is going in the wrong direction spiritually, the Bible says that God has a remnant, something that remains, remains Faithful, true, following the word of God down in the close of time. In a time of compromise, there will be a remnant back from the wilderness, drawn together by the spirit of God, raised up by the grace of Christ. It's going to take the truth. The remnant is going to take the truth of God's word. It will take the message of the gospel all the way down to the finish line when God's people will be crowned with crowns of victory. The remnant, what does it look like? What comprises the remnant? How does the Bible describe this to us? Well, if you look in the Bible, and it's important you do, let me say something about believers down through time. It's really important that we cling to the Bible and stand on the Bible. 
turning in your Bible or on your device. That's absolutely vital. And so the Bible says in Revelation 12, 17, that the remnant keep the commandments of God. Obeying God is the natural result of having been saved by the grace of God. And let me say this. Now, we say obeying, yes, but 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 we are incomplete and we are weakened. And many of us, while we're endeavoring and wanting and desiring to obey, we're still growing. And so we're not serving aces every time we hit the ball. So understand that growth is a process. I'm not trying to make excuses for anyone's spiritual dysfunction. But we grow, you know, and it's important to recognize that. There is a surrender to the indwelling presence of Jesus. And so by God's grace, out of love for him, God's people choose to keep the Ten Commandments. And what happens when you make a mess of it? Well, you run to Jesus in repentance. You go to God and say, sorry. And you remember what the Bible says. John wrote these words, my little children, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. That's really clear. Don't sin. But he says, and if anyone should sin, that person has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you see that? So don't sin. That's that's the idea. But should you slip? Should you stumble? Should, I don't know, your low blood pressure or your low, low blood sugar, I meant to say, should your low blood sugar get the best of you? The fact that you didn't eat breakfast and you spent half the day hangry and you, and you, and you didn't have your personal time with God in the morning and, and, ah, and you caved into selfish desires. Go to God. Go to God. And he'll forgive you. That's what he does. That's his business. His business is redemption, you understand. So the Bible says that the remnant will keep the commandments of God. That's very important. That's important. And so if you were looking for a, let me tell you this, I can't tell you the country in the Middle East I've been asked not to. It's a place where Christians aren't welcome. A man found a Bible, read it. He said, I'm going to follow this Jesus. I'm going to find a church. But I'm going to find a church that keeps the commandments because that's what God asks us to do in the Bible. A lone man in a country in the Middle East where there are about that many Christians. And he figured it out for himself because, after all, it's what the Bible says. The Bible says something really interesting in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. It says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Let's get this straight. God's people, his remnant down to the end of time, will proclaim the everlasting gospel. Now, we can look at this two ways. The everlasting gospel is mentioned there in Revelation chapter 14. Fear God, give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. I've often been puzzled why churches everywhere don't talk about this because it is said to be the final gospel message to go to the world. Revelation 14.8, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Revelation 14.9, Don't receive the mark of the beast and don't worship the beast, the everlasting gospel. So this is a message that will be taken to the world by God's people in the last days. And I'd be nervous if I was in a church and realized that my church just ignores this. This is not an invention on the part of me. This is a mandate given to the church clearly and plainly in the book of Revelation. But let's not let's not skip something here. The Bible says that the remnant will proclaim 
the everlasting gospel. At least, at least, this is the message for earth in, in earth's last days. It's the gospel. Now, you know, I could go several different directions here. I, I get amused, uh, disappointed when I hear people talking about everything but the gospel. Everything but the gospel. Sidetracked, conspiracy theories, prosperity, everything but the gospel. I say, what is this? But let me move on from that because I may have been editorializing there. If God's people in the earth's last days proclaim the gospel, well, what will that be? That will be the, that will be the wonderful story of God's intervention in the affairs of human beings. We didn't invite him, by the way. God created us, Adam and Eve, put our original grandparents in a perfect place. He said, you can have it all, just not that, but everything else, just not that. And Eve somehow got in a conversation with a snake. And the snake beguiled her. And all of this, just not that, that God spoke to her was not forgotten. Those words were ringing in her ears, surely, and she made a decision I'll go after this because he's made it sound so good. Adam joined her in her sin. They were lost. But God loved them so much that he came down and confronted the serpent. He said, you are done. You are done. Your head will be bruised. You'll bruise the the heel of the Savior, but your head will be bruised. You will be done. God gave Adam and Eve the gift of repentance. They repented as far as we can tell. No question about it. Jesus then came to this world to die for the sins of humanity so that we wouldn't have to die. The law demanded death in the case of sin. Sin brings separation from God. That's death. Jesus said, no, not them, me. Not them, me. I'll die. Be like Mother Teresa walking into a maximum security prison. Some scoundrel being put to death. And Mother Teresa says, let him go. I'll die. That's a poor human example, but it's one we can understand, except it's infinitely bigger than that. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died to set us free. Our challenge is sin. Sin is what separates us from God. In fact, because of Jesus' death on the cross, our challenge isn't sin anymore. Our challenge is self, because Jesus said in John 5, the trouble is, Jesus said, you will not come to me that you might have life. Jesus died to rescue a perishing world. Jesus died to save a dying world. Will you let him save you? It's just that simple. If you go it alone, you've you've chosen to turn aside the provisions of the gospel. I'll be fine. I'll just have this world. And you might have plenty. You might drive the nicest drive and live in the nicest live and have the most mostness. You might be uh, filthy rich and hugely successful. You might enjoy fame and adulation. One day it'll be gone. What then? Now, you can have material things, but have Jesus too, you know? Why don't you chase Jesus? It didn't do Abraham any harm to have faith in God. He was wealthy. Didn't do David and Solomon any harm. They were well off. But put Jesus first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you according to God's will. The gospel, Jesus died for you. The perfect sinless one died for a sinful, very broken world. 
The grave could not hold him. He ascended and went to heaven. He intercedes for us at God's right hand. He is coming back soon to take us home. Don't you want to go? Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to live in the mansion that Jesus made for you? I'd be happy to camp in a tent that Jesus made for me. But he says it's going to be wonderful, better than we can even imagine. Oh, friend, Jesus calls you. He died for you. And the gospel story, the good news story is that salvation, a salvation you don't deserve can be yours through faith in Jesus. A heaven you don't deserve can be yours through accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What a wonderful story. God will forgive you of your sins. He'll take away every last stain. He will remake you. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the Bible says, all things become new. You can be new. You can put your head on your pillow and by faith say, I'm new. How do you know? The gospel says so. Jesus died for my sins. You can have that free. Can't pay for it. Can't earn it. It's yours free through the gospel. Beautiful. And God's people in the close of time will be people who believe and teach and proclaim the gospel. Where? Well, the Bible tells us to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In other words, God's message will go worldwide, which means his remnant people will be global, worldwide. Not just in one building on one street corner, not merely in one state or province, not merely on one continent, but God's remnant will be worldwide. Revelation twelve seventeen again. And we see a really important point. It says that the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, it would be appropriate for you to wonder what the testimony of Jesus Christ actually is. The Bible tells us in Revelation 19 and verse 10, we read that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's the same as saying the gift of prophecy. So what's the gift of prophecy? Let's remember Nostradamus, not a prophet. Gene Dixon, not a prophet. Ran into a fellow, he said, man, we had a great revival of that church last Sunday. Brother so-and-so was there and he was a prophet. I said, a prophet? How did you know he was a prophet? He said, well, the preacher told us he was a prophet. I guess that settles it, right? Preacher told you. No, I would say not a prophet. In all likelihood, not a prophet. But that's not to say that the genuine gift of prophecy doesn't exist. Where would you find the genuine gift of prophecy? Is this someone who's going to be on 60 Minutes doing guesswork, telling you where the child was actually taken to or making predictions about the future? No, that wouldn't be the gift of prophecy. Where would you find it? You'd find it according to Paul, who wrote about these things to the Corinthians, in the church. Listen, and God has appointed these in the church. First, apostles. Secondarily, what? Prophets, that's the gift of prophecy. Then teachers and miracles and healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues or languages. Just as God gives other gifts, 
He gives the gift of prophecy. Now, what Jesus did was he warned us to watch out for false prophets, which might suggest to us that there would be a genuine version of prophecy, certainly true in the early Christian church. So if Jesus said false, we ought to know how we can find the true. And I shall tell you, Jeremiah 28 verse 9 says that someone with the gift of prophecy must be accurate accurate. This does not mean that all prophecy is predictive in nature. That is not the case. But when someone claims to have the gift of prophecy, that person needs to be accurate if they make a prediction. Now, not Jonah. Jonah said, you all will be destroyed in Nineveh if you don't repent. They repented. But when someone says something is going to happen at a given time and it doesn't, flee, run, just don't, don't listen anymore. That person is absolutely a false prophet. But this is not the only one you get. In Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3, it tells us that the genuine gift of prophecy will be in harmony with the Bible. You would expect that to be so. John, in 1 John, wrote that the genuine gift of prophecy will exalt Jesus. Isaiah said it will uphold God's law. It's interesting what he said. He said, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, we both know it's fashionable for people to speak about Jesus out of one side of their mouth and out of the other to say, oh, no, you can go on disobeying God. You don't need to obey God's law. That is not speaking to the law and to the testimony. It's speaking dead set against it. You mean, if I went downtown and told people that they were free to break the law, no one would believe me. But if I stood up in church and said, you can break God's law, church full of people would believe me. Help me to understand that. That simply doesn't make any sense. If I said, man, forget the speed limit. Drive right out out here on the main street. Drive at 110 kilometers an hour. And Melbourne drivers, I tell you, they stick to the speed limit. You must have some serious penalties here. They stick to the speed limit. So if I said you can drive on the freeway 200 kilometers an hour, no one would buy it. But I can stand up in church and say, you don't need to obey God's law. And the people say, amen. Ooh, come on. That's, that's rich. That's rich. I could stand up and say, God's law doesn't matter. And folks would say, the anointing is on you. Except that love for Jesus leads you to respect and obey. I'm not talking about legalism. It's not legalism to obey your wedding vows. It's not legalism to obey the speed limit. That's being a good citizen. Love, love for your spouse leads you to faithfulness. Love for God leads you to faithfulness. And so the gift of prophecy is going to be found in the church. And there's a reason for that. Before you think that the church doesn't need spiritual gifts, and I know you don't really mean that because you wouldn't say we don't need administrations and teachings and healings and helps and so on. But before anybody thinks the church doesn't need spiritual gifts, remember why God gives the gift of prophecy. He gives the gift of prophecy to turn his people towards himself and to prepare them for something that's going to take place. Noah was given the gift of prophecy. Why? Noah warned people about the flood. John the Baptist was given the gift of prophecy. Why is that? John the Baptist was used by God to prepare the world 
to accept and embrace Messiah, Jesus Christ. It would make sense for God to restore the gift of prophecy prior to the second coming of Jesus. Why? To urge people to be faithful, to show people the standards are trailing in the dust, to remind people that you want to heed uh, the message of the Bible, to encourage people to surrender fully to Jesus because he's coming back soon. The gift of prophecy. In fact, it was Amos, the prophet, who said, Surely the Lord would do nothing except he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And God says that his remnant in the last days of earth's history would see this gift in action. So did God place this gift in the heart of his remnant down in the close of time? How did God manifest this gift among a people who are keeping the commandments of God in preparation for the return of Jesus. Let's go back. Come back with me to the 1800s, where people all around the world, and that's true, all around the world, were starting to talk about the second coming of Jesus. It's one of those things that was just not really spoken about. But as people uh, across the United States and around the world were talking about the second coming of Christ, God did something remarkable. A Baptist preacher, a what kind of preacher? A Baptist preacher, a man of God, a man named William Miller, made a prediction that Jesus would return to the earth in 1843. Of course, he was wrong. He misunderstood the prophecy dealing with the judgment hour. He was an honest-hearted man who loved God, but he was mistaken about this. By the way, is being mistaken sinful? Yes or no? Does that mean you're a sinner if you made a mistake? No. Does it mean you're a sinner if you make a mistake about the word of God? No. It simply means you made a mistake. The Baptist preacher said that Jesus would return, but Jesus did not return. People were now really thinking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of this, God called a 17-year-old young woman and blessed her with a special endowment of the Holy Spirit. For over 70 years, she shared with others the light that God shone upon her heart. Today, there are more than a 100 books bearing her name available in the English language alone. In fact, she is the most translated female author in the history of modern literature. Her writings have been translated into more than 135 different languages. What she has shared about Christ and the gospel and the word of God and living for Jesus has changed lives around the world. And the church that she helped to found is today in more countries on this planet than any other Protestant church. She wrote a book called Steps to Christ. It is remarkable. It is the best book I know of outside the Bible on the subject of knowing Jesus and growing in faith and living for him. She wrote about the life of Christ. She wrote about the parables of Christ. She wrote about the prophecies of the Bible. She wrote on many other topics designed to help people grow in their faith and have a vital connection with the God of heaven. She wrote a book called The Ministry of Healing. It deals with physical and spiritual health and their connection. It has been praised 
as being more than a 100 years ahead of its time. Now, back in the day when doctors were prescribing tobacco, can you believe it? You have a cough, you need to smoke, that will help your lungs. Oh, my goodness. She said this, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. How'd she know? She was not a scientist. How'd she know? She was not a doctor. If she was, she'd have been telling people to smoke. How'd she know? Because God shone that light on her heart. And God wanted people to stay away from these habits that would destroy them because he was in the business of preparing the people to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. Interesting, this quote is from a man named Clive Mackay, uh, once was a professor uh, at uh, Cornell University. I believe his field was nutrition. He said, whatever may be the religious belief of a reader, he or she cannot help but gain much guidance in a better and healthier way of life from reading the major works of Ellen G. White. He said, every modern specialist in nutrition whose life is dedicated to human welfare must be impressed by the writings and leadership of Ellen White. Her ministry has helped countless thousands begin a relationship with Jesus Christ to grow their faith in the Bible. That's what the spirit of prophecy, that's what the gift of prophecy should do. So if you have the gift of prophecy, is that like having another Bible? No, it's not. In the early Christian church, there were prophets here and there. There were many prophets, Agabus and Philip's four daughters and John and Peter and Paul had the gift of prophecy. But that didn't mean that what they had was like having another Bible. Of course not. Does the gift of prophecy take the place of the Bible? Of course it doesn't. Does the gift of prophecy make the Bible less important? Absolutely not. Ellen White said, my role is to point people to the greater light, to point people to Jesus, to point people to the word of God. I want to encourage you to become familiar with what she's written. If you've heard of her but never read anything she wrote, get a book like The Desire of Ages on the Life of Christ, The Great Controversy on the Great Battle Between Good and Evil. Get a book like Steps to Christ and your soul will be fed and you'll see Jesus in a in a beautiful way. You'll be blessed. And so let's let's look again at God's remnant in earth's last days. It will keep the commandments. It will proclaim the everlasting gospel. It will do so worldwide. And it will have the gift of prophecy. But we're not done. Because in Revelation chapter 18, we read these really stunning words. This is John speaking about a fourth angel. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For the, for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And then John said this, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, what? Come out of her who? Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins 
unless you receive of her plagues. This is a dramatic indictment against the falsehood in earth's last days. What does God say? He says to people in Babylon in spiritual confusion, we described this, defined this two nights ago. He says, come out of her. Don't keep on going in that way. Don't keep on going down that road. Come out of her. Come out of what the Bible calls Babylon and be part of the remnant. Instead of just hearing the warning message, give the warning message. Instead of merely reading what the Bible says about faith in Christ, let Jesus live his life in you. So these principles can be demonstrated in your life. God calls everyone to come away from false worship and instead keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Everlasting gospel, keeping God's commandments, worldwide gift of prophecy, calling people to come out of Babylon. Now, I know that somebody is thinking, you know, John, I did not expect to hear you say that only the people who go to your church will be saved and everyone else will be lost. John, I'm so surprised to hear you say that. Someone's thinking that right now. And I would like to remind you, friend of God, that that's not what I said. And it's certainly not what I believe. You know me well enough to know by now that I would never say that. Proverbs 4 and verse 18 says this is interesting. But the path of the just is like the shining light that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. Think with me about what happened down through history. The church was in the wilderness. We read about that before, and then something happened. God placed his hand upon the life of a young priest named Martin Luther. Martin Luther had a burden for the truth of the Bible and wanted to show people the way of salvation. The church said penances, sacraments, uh, indulgences. This is the way to salvation. Confession to a priest. Come to us. Martin Luther said, no, no. I know that the Bible says the just shall live by faith. He taught justification by faith. This was like turning on a bright light, a Klieg light in a dark room. It's like when you wake up in the morning and turn on the light. You do that for a while. This was big stuff. I say this to you. The just shall live by faith. And you be saying, I know that. I was told that from this talk. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And you will say, yes, of course, it couldn't be any other way. Ah, but it could because 500 years ago, people were absolutely teaching it was another way. And they were killing those who taught the Bible truth. Martin Luther cobbled together, well, like a magnet draws iron filings, he attracted followers and they became Lutherans. And that's okay, except the light didn't stop with Martin Luther. There was more light. John Calvin came along. And Calvin, though his teachings were not perfect, he added a little more light. Ulrich Zwingli did much the same thing. Come on down through time and you get down to like, John Wesley. John Wesley added to that. Uh, then you had, in fact, before Wesley's time, uh, the Anabaptists. And they said, wait up. What about baptism by immersion? Don't forget that. Don't forget that. And so baptism by immersion got added. You see what happened? The church was in the wilderness. It was darker than dark. It was like the darkness in Egypt. It was palpable. But then Martin Luther came. Light started to shine. Calvin came, little more light. 
Zwingli, lit them all light. The Anabaptists, lit them all light. The light is getting kind of bright now. John Wesley, lit them all light. Then this idea that Jesus was going to come back. Ooh, second coming. Light got bigger. Then the idea, people ought to keep all of the commandments of God. Yes, I know there was some doing that. But now this was proclaimed from the rooftops. Keep the commandments of God. The light became brighter because Jesus was preparing people to be ready for the second coming. And out of this movement, there came a body of believers that would become known as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It would teach truth and not tradition. It would stand on the Bible and not tradition and the magisterium. It would proclaim the word of God and encourage others to stand on the word of God. Friends, a church teaching truth and not tradition. And it's this church I believe God is inviting you to become part of so that you can stand with Christ at the cross on solid rock down here in earth's last days. Remember the words of a pastor. His name was John Robinson. He pastored some of the pilgrims that left Europe fleeing persecution, looking for religious freedom. And he said this to them. He couldn't make the trip. And so he said, he said this. I charge you before God that you follow me no farther than you've seen me follow Christ. For I am verily persuaded that God hath more truth and light yet to break forth from his holy word. you got to love that attitude. Yes, follow me, but only follow me where I followed the Bible because God's got more. Martin Luther's followers, followers followed him and didn't go on for the more. Happened with Calvin and his followers, Knox and his followers. The Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, and on and on. These people set up camp and didn't move. When more light was added, they said, no, we're good because we are this, rather than continuing their search. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, and there will be one shepherd. Jesus wants to gather his flock together. Just as the scarlet woman has been gathering people all around the world saying, follow this tradition, follow this teaching of the church, follow us. God has been leading his people back to the Bible. Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I want to tell you it is no accident that you have come to this series of presentations. No accident at all. It's because God loves you and he has been drawing you. You responded to God's drawing here. Because God wants you to stand on that rock, to stand on Jesus, to be ready when Jesus comes back. Man, what a day it's going to be when gravity no longer has any power over the soles of our feet. And we go up and all of this will be left behind. Sin and sadness and suffering and sickness, it'll all be left behind. Death and disease, it will all be left behind. Thank God we will have brand new hearts made by Jesus, brand new bodies made by Jesus. We will live with Jesus forever in a land where the flowers never fade, where there's no curse, where there's no night. We have eternity to look forward to thanks to Jesus. We've got to be ready on that day, don't you think? There's no accident you're here because God has called you here. That's just the truth of the matter. God has called you to be here. And he calls you and he asks you to respond. Would you respond? Would you respond to his gracious invitation? Would you do that? I heard a story just a few days ago and I said, that's a great illustration. A young Iraqi boy, Amar was his name, Amar, 
was with some friends playing in southern Iraq when there was an attack. They knew the attack was coming. They heard the sounds of attack. They ran into a warehouse to hide. They were familiar with that building, but that warehouse was bombed. And there was napalm that rained down on them. It was believed that everybody was killed, but Amar was close to a door and was able to get out of the door. He got out and he ran and he ran. He was he was burned, badly burned, badly burned. All of his family had to be dead. So Amar was taken to a hospital and was being treated for his burns, but they just didn't have the technology to really help the boy. A British member of parliament arranged for the young boy to be taken to Great Britain where he was treated with absolutely first-class treatment. He was disfigured slightly. If you see him, you know, yeah, that guy was burned, but they did a wonderful job. He's just fine. Looks good. And so the people who took him to Great Britain tried desperately to find his family. And the best that they were told was that his family were killed, all of them. His mother, his dad had already died in a car accident. His mother, his two brothers and his three sisters, all killed, he was told. The family was told. So they adopted him and raised him, took him in at 10 years of age. You know, life got tough. He, he, he was without family. He said, I, I didn't have anyone around me. There was an Arabic-speaking community, but he said, you know, actually, it just frustrated me because I'd hear Arabic, and it would remind me that I'd lost my family. I lost everything. He said, there were times I almost felt suicidal. No family, no mother. I would never know my mother's love. What would I do? He just drifted, wandered off to London. He became estranged from the family that raised him. One day, a friend of his was standing on a railway platform and got talking to the guy who was just next to him. This guy was a journalist. And and, and this old friend of Amar said, you ought to do a story about Amar. When he was brought to Great Britain, there was great fanfare, lots of publicity. Everybody knew about him. But years later, you know, people move on. Why don't you do a follow-up about Amar? They said, what a good idea. They found him and Amar said, sure, do a story about me. That's okay. While they were talking, they said, you got any family alive in Iraq? No, no, nothing. You sure? Yeah, sure, nothing. They're all dead. But then in the fullness of time, he said to the journalist, you know, someone on Facebook has been sending me messages, something about family in Iraq. I just ignored those messages. I mean, Surely it's just another con, somebody trying to get something out of me. Journalist said, you mind if I take a look? They looked at the messages. A man named Mustafa, who lived in Iraqi Kurdistan, had seen a news report. Here's the news report. A journalist was doing a report from a fish market live on television. When Amar's mother, a woman claiming to be Amar's mother, a woman named Zara, ran up to him, grabbed the microphone and started speaking to the camera, holding a photograph of her little boy arriving in Great Britain. This is my son. I believe he's alive. I heard he went to Europe. Please help me. He's my son. I've looked and looked and looked and looked. I've looked for 30 years. I believe he's alive. Please, somebody help me. Mustafa watched this and and he said, I felt her pain. I've lost family members. I wanted to help her. Wouldn't it be great to put them back together? So he searched the internet. He searched social media and looked and looked and looked, and he found someone that he believed was Zara's son, Amar. He sent messages, but Amar ignored them. The journalist said, 
I think it could be your mum. She looks a little bit like you. She seems genuine. The journalists travelled to Iraq to check it out. Journalists said it was uncanny. She was so much like her son, even sniffing mid-sentence when she spoke. There was a visible physical resemblance as well. Amma, I think I found your mum. No, there have been others, imposters along the way. Have her take a DNA test. She took a DNA test. They had to wait two weeks. Amar took a DNA test. And the results came back 99.999% likely that there's a match. It was his mum. So now with the journalist, Amar got on the plane and flew back to Iraq They made a plan to meet. It was really interesting. He hadn't been there in 30 years. He hadn't spoken Arabic in 30 years. His Arabic came back. He comes back to Iraq. He says, man, it feels good to be home. They arranged to meet in a a backyard, a back garden at someone's house. Zara was waiting. Amar came around the corner, you know, and she says, my son, my son. And she runs and she embraces him. I have just wanted to hold you. I've just wanted to touch you. You're my son. And a loving mother was reunited with her loving son. I thought about that. I thought about the explosion, the explosion of sin that separated us from our Heavenly Father. And I realized that he has never stopped looking for you. You've never stopped. Zara said, I went back to the building and I searched in the ruins of the building for days. I searched in the mud. I looked in the rivers. I looked on the river banks. I looked in alleyways. I looked everywhere. And I made an appeal. Does somebody know how I can find my son? I think of God crying with a loud voice, the three angels' messages, the everlasting gospel. He cries out to the world. Where's my son? Where's my daughter? And you've heard the report. You've watched the video. Yeah, that's God. He's calling to me. And now the question is, would you get on the plane and travel to your home country? Would you come to God and say, here I am? I want to embrace you because I know you want to embrace me. Imagine if Amar had said, yeah, that's my mother, but tell her I'm not interested. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Imagine if he traveled to Iraq and he said, by the way, I don't care, and turned around and walked out. She'd have died. Imagine how God feels when he calls to us and we say, I'm just not that interested. How about when God calls to us and we walk up to him and we look him in the face and we say, No. Oh, my goodness, it's got to break his heart. Don't break God's heart. Are you are you living in a way that's that's not where God wants you to be? Are you choosing not to obey and honor God? Are you choosing not to allow Jesus to come into your heart? Oh, friend, don't do that any longer. Would you respond to God what he wants? He just wants to be reunited with you. That's what God simply wants a beautiful reunion to take place. And it'll take place if you will simply respond to God's message and say, yeah, here I am. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. 
Can you say that to God tonight? I think you can. Make a decision for Jesus tonight.